Hello, and how are you? This is David Avalon with another episode of Breaking the Guard with me and Robert Drysdale. Today's episode, which is episode number 20, we go into MMA history very briefly before we start jumping around all over the place. But we talk a lot about leadership uh, in regards to what it takes to be a leader and how a leader needs to be successful. We, we also go into honesty and how, uh, as Robert puts it, everybody's lying to themselves and, uh, and how you have to hold yourself as a, as a person, at least our advice. And we get into some other uh, top related topics as well. But it was a really fun conversation. Uh, I think there's a lot of good nuggets that everybody will be able to get both from a life perspective and from a training perspective as well. So go ahead and tune in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get started, I'd like to mention one of our sponsors, which is the Front Headlock Series. So the Front Headlock Series is what I recommend to anybody who doesn't like to wrestle. <laughs> and oddly enough, it's a wrestling position, but it's the most unwrestling wrestling position you can get into. And by that, I mean that most of the time, people who don't like wrestling, particularly if you're a novice, because you have to shoot in and you get sprawled on and you just go get miserably punished from the bottom of a sprawl, or you get guillotine joked or you get Kimura trapped or some other submission while you're trying to lunge in for a shot. And particularly if you have bad knees or you're not that quick, shooting in, which is what most uh, jiu-jitsu guys are trying to do for takedowns, is not going to be the best way to go. But someone with a good front headlock doesn't need to shoot in. In fact, they can wait for you to shoot in and be the one that puts you in the sprawl or guillotines you or, or whatnot. And in this front headlock series, I go over a step-by-step -step series of how to approach scoring the front headlock. Because I know a lot of people, especially when you're good at guillotines, you start getting uh, uh, headhunter mode. And I've seen little people will literally jump in the air to try to get around someone's head, which is very bad technique, obviously. Um, so in this series, we talk about proper setups, feints, uh, learning how to address posture, because you can't always front headlock somebody. So you have to know when to do it and how to set it up if they're not in posture. And I go over a bunch of my setups, including the one that I used to take down Cyborg at the ADCC Absolute Division, which ended up winning me the match. So I... Uh, especially now since I'm off knee surgery and all that, I definitely like using front headlocks because one, it's a very low risk, high reward position, right? Like if I have someone in a headlock, they can't submit me, they can't strike at me, they can't really do much of anything except defend their neck. Especially when you have submissions, the choke is always there. Pretty much every choke that you can do in combat can be done from a front headlock. If you're doing guillotines, dars, anaconda, Triangle chokes, reverse triangle chokes, inverted triangle chokes. I mean, uh, you can even set up the rear naked real easily from there. So pretty much if you're a choker, you want to learn how to use a front headlock because it's the best grip you're going to get on somebody's uh, head, you know, because you have their head and their shoulder, really strong grip. So anyhow, I highly recommend it, and we currently have it on sale. So normally the DVD is $77, online 67 but for right now for the winter uh, sale, it's only going to be $40. So it's, I think, like 40% off or something like that. Really good deal. Go ahead and check it out now. It's available in DVD and online streaming formats, so you can just order it and get instant online access. And you can get that at Front 
headlock.com. Again, that's frontheadlock.com. Hey, what's going on? David Avon here with Robert Drysdale with another episode of Breaking the Guard. This one's episode number 20. Wow. It's Getting up quick, there. man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, loving it, loving it. Lots of fun. Uh, so, Dave, what's new, man? Give me, give me some updates. Oh, God, getting settled in, still <laughs> getting into fights yeah. about furniture choices. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you never win that fight with a woman. Why would, why would you even bother, Dave? I'm not trying to. Yeah. yeah what do you think about this? Like, I don't like it. Like, oh, now you don't like you know, anything. My, my favorite, favorite when like, women do this, they'll go like, which one do you want, the red or the blue? And you say, blue. And she goes, no, but the red is, the red is better, isn't it? I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. Red is better. You know what they're really saying. Like you got to. They want you to choose, but they want you to choose the one that they like. Right? Don't you dare choose the wrong one. It doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah. it's always a mess there. But things are coming along. So yeah, it's going pretty well. How about you, Rob? I, good. Just busy, man. Like running around like crazy. But you know, like good stuff, man. I like, got a lot of new projects. Uh, we're starting an MMA team. Nice. Yeah, we're building something like everything in house. You know, everything from management to striking, strength conditioning, the whole deal. Like everything under one roof. And what I want to do with that is kind of like stop the, I mean, if you're, if you're familiar with Vegas, like the dynamic here is a very strange one. Yeah, the Fighters is. bounce around like crazy. Like they have a different coach every week. They, they train at two, three different gyms. Um, sometimes you get two guys that are fighting each other, training on the same mat. That's so yeah. strange to me. You know, I know like, you know, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has a reputation for being like, oh, you're a Creonti if you bounce around. But then like Vegas like swung all the way the other way. And I think it's even worse. Yeah. And it just created this, like, it's this poisonous environment where coaches are fighting over who's going to corner who. It's just weird, man. So I'm trying to create the opposite of that. Yeah, that's the thing I noticed when I came here. Right? Because I saw, like, the, the, well, you said most places are very political in the sense yeah. that you're not allowed to train here and there. And here, it's like, everybody's everywhere. I'd go, when I was trying to find my footing, I'd go to one gym, and then i see the same people in the next gym, and then yeah. the other one, I'm like, man. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. Yeah. Everybody's everywhere. And like you're saying, there's a lot of, like, Fight conflicts, you know, yeah. like at least for me, I'm not comfortable with that as a coach, you know, because like then I'm training somebody that's going to end up fighting one of my guys later yeah. on. It's a conflict of interest. Oh, this literally happened. I won't mention what fight, but recent fight. This guy's uh, like a week of the fight, last sparring session, blows his knee, right? Mm. 20 minutes later, his opponent who lives in town gets a phone call. So and so blew his knee, oh, right? Wow. The guys in his gym were tipping him off to his opponent right like i don't know man like at some point you got to have like some 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 ethics you know you just got to go even if you're like oh it's all about the money you know whatever or this guy's my friend but it's still like you're on the mats with this guy you have to respect they have to honor that to some extent you know yeah this guy is like open he's like exposing himself in front of you he's making himself vulnerable and you're going to use that against him right to tip off tip him off to one of your your friend who, who he happens to be fighting right so my vision is to close it down a little bit more. And honestly, I don't want cross-training, man. I, I don't want that. I want to lock it down. I want to go, here, training partners. Are you missing a training partner? Are you lacking training partners? No. The coach good. The coach is good. And what else? And I just want to kind of like, you know, it, we, I want to run it like a collegiate practice. I don't know if it's going to work. But, you know, in college or in Olympic sports, generally speaking, if the wife, if the wife likes the coach, you know how much that means to the coach? Yeah. Zero. Exactly. I don't care your girlfriend doesn't like it doesn't ma- it doesn't mean anything to me. But in MMA, if the wife doesn't like you, you're screwed. You're old, you're done. It doesn't matter how good of a coach you are. If the wife doesn't like you, if the kids don't like you, if the 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 
the mother-in-law doesn't like you, you're screwed, right? You're out. So because it's a, it's a strange dynamic where the coach is not really the boss. The coach is an employee to the family, right? Not just the family. To like sometimes like, no, like just the, the fighter itself. Like he's the boss, right? The fighter tells the coach what he wants and how he wants to work out. I want to flip that on its head. And I go, this is what you're doing. It may be difficult because of the culture of MMA. is a very individualistic culture. These guys kind of like, yeah. they tell, this is what I, I'm going to do for this camp. I just don't, I don't even want to corner people like that. If I'm going to do this, I want to do it in a way where like me and the other coaches, we sit down, we lay out a game plan, and the fighters are going to follow. And if they don't like it, they can leave anytime they want. Yeah. You know, let's see what, how it goes. But like I want to, I want to lock it down. And I think that would be, I think if the, if coaches are more likely to be invested that way. And I think it created more of a family, more of a small, little, a tight little beehive versus this, I'm going to bounce around and do whatever the hell I want kind of thing, which I actually ends up harming the fighters. I would think so. You know, I've never been one to want to bounce around that way, especially if I'm trying to train to get better for myself, you know, because you're getting lots of mixed messages, you know, and unless you feel you have pumped your coach for everything they're worth and you've extracted everything from them, you have no reason to be bouncing around. And, I, I agree. And I can tell you right now, <laughs> nobody's pumped all the information from a coach. You know what no, I mean? Like, no. it's never happened. Yeah. You know, like, if you're going with a coach who who's actually knows what he's doing, you know, you know like, for example, of course, you're a super expert. Like, nobody's tapped you out for knowledge. You know what yeah. I mean? So it doesn't make sense to bounce around, you know? Right. And I, I look at guys and people are like, oh, I need... Like, this cutting edge thing or this and like no you don't you know it's like do you go to college and take 20 majors at once yeah it doesn't work you're doesn't gonna work, your attention's no. gonna be spread thin so while there might be good stuff over here there's a lot of good stuff over here that you need to trust that your coach is going to give you the, the path you need yeah. and every so often you're going to bring in people like you might fly in a sparring partner or whatnot to give this guy a new look give them a new direction maybe some new technique or we, we've done that in my gym we would fly people over for a week and they essentially run all the classes yeah. for the week and they're just teaching everything and then yeah. they get like a very quick exposure to some stuff that we weren't teaching okay now we add that to the curriculum yeah now we've absorbed that you know and now we're going to start running that through but i i don't agree that people are like oh you gotta move it's now time to switch camps and you gotta go here now yeah. because you're in this stage of your career and that and like and uh, one of the best fighters of all time was like Fedor Emelianenko, and he was training with people like nobody knows the name of the coach, right? Only if you're a super hardcore fan yeah. do you know who is it. Fedor, they're really good for himself. Yeah. Okay. Of course, it, it, and people now they like, go, oh, "Well, he got knocked out." Which I, you saw him like he way was, after. He was yeah. the emperor, man. He yeah. was the man in the heavyweight division. Yeah. No one wanted to fight him. Like that's, yeah. He was unbeatable for a minute there. Correct. Yeah, and he had a very good stretch of time. I think his problem was they put him on the shelf for too long trying to create that M1 UFC deal that never was going to happen. And then he just, like if you're sitting on the sidelines for four or five years, yeah. and a game like this, which is moving really fast, man, you're outdated. Yeah, right? and, and, and he's not young anymore. He's, yeah. he's, he's had some wars in his life. But you know, like the whole the cross-training thing, I have a theory of why that is. And I think that the, 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 the justification for cross-training is oh I need new training partners and you'd be exposed to new challenges new techniques I don't think that's the reason I think it's more about socializing I think it's more about networking it's more about creating alliances it's mm -hmm. more about like going over there and making friends Hafi calls it make a friend you know and like, there's a lot of making a friend in jiu-jitsu I notice that yeah. we do open mats on weekends sometimes and people don't want to train they'll get a round or two in what they really want to do hang out it's, right. I think a lot of it has to do with hanging out. They just want to hang out and like cheat their friends and they want to measure themselves against those guys. Where do I sit in that hierarchy? 
I understand where I sit in the hierarchy of my gym. I know who's who. Over there, I wonder, wonder where I sit. It, it is a challenge in a sense where it's almost like competition, right? There's that, that vibe to it because you never train with this guy. You've known him, yeah. but you've never trained with him. It's like, can I beat this guy? Is he going to beat me? But I think a lot of it has to do with building alliances too. People are like that. We like to make friends and you, know, and you never know. Keep that door open just in case tomorrow. You never know. I think there's a lot more of that going on than people realize. I, my whole take on it is, are you getting beaten, Jim? Yes, then, then you haven't outdone that, Jim. It's that simple. Like, if you walk in the gym and you're making everyone tap left, right, and center, and no one's challenging you, then I think that you have to leave. And when I say beating, not just like, oh, I beat everyone by one advantage today. Like, I'm tapping you, like, every minute. Like, you're not even close to being a challenge. I completely get that. Other than that, the way I see it, you haven't exhausted, your, you know, what that gym has to offer you. Yeah, I'd go even further than that. Like, even if you're destroying everybody, if the coach is putting you on the right path, like, you might have someone like, let's say, GSP. I would expect him to be able to smash just about everybody that he's facing. He's one of the best fighters of all time, arguably. But he hasn't lost. You know, like, I imagine Fedor was probably the best guy in his room. But when he was on a roll, he was smashing everybody. There's a intimate relationship between the coach and the athlete. And once they get to know each other, then they have a synergy where the coach right. kind of knows, oh, this is what he needs right now. Even if he's not vocalizing it, I can tell. You know, you, you can read body language. You can read, like, what they're saying and the, the subtext behind it. And that takes time to develop, you know, because you have to really get to know the fighter. That's why, like, one time I had to coach somebody from another team. I was uh, running... Alliance MMA out of San Diego. Actually, it was an interesting good. They were actually going to put him against one of my other fighters from Miami. Yeah. And then I told him, hey, look, I can't coach this Conf- fight. Conflict, conflict of, interest. of interest. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to tell you how to beat him or vice versa. And you don't want me just to fly there and watch you. Yeah. And then they ended up shuffling the card so he didn't have to fight. But still, like, I didn't really know the guy that well. So it's like, how do I like, how does he like to warm up? How does he... What things does he need to hear before the fight to get psyched? So I had to like interview him. Okay, what do you want? Blah, blah, blah. But it's not the same versus having a coach that's been with you like 10, 15 years. They know everything that you need. And, Absolutely. And especially when you're going into combat, you need that sense of confidence in your corner. Like you need to have faith in that guy because once you're in there, you got the blinders on. He's the guy that's going to be calling the shots. And if he's calling for cues that you don't identify with, they're just going to go right over your head. And you just touched on something that is very overlooked about like the synergy is huge and it's the trust yes i think that the person who's in your corner it to me more important than having like being an outstanding technician which you can you can be an outstanding be an outstanding technician as far as the coach goes yeah and not be trusted it has i give you surprised at how much social intelligence plays a role in these camps like how much the coach has to be that wise warrior you have to be that that experienced guy that every time you say something, people listen. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And it like you, you gain that reputation, you gain that trust. And every every time you step foot in the gym, every time you're speaking to people, every time you're interacting, whether people realize it or not, they're observing your body language, the tone of your voice, your social intelligence, and you're being judged the entire time. People are constantly judging you. Just don't always realize, but you're constantly under their, the scrutiny of like them analyzing you know, how wise are you? And I know this. Like, there's, like, I've seen some of these coaches. They talk like this. And, you know, you need to work on your, your footwork more. 
and they look you in the eye when they say it, right? And the fire, it's just like they're getting hypnotized. And I'm like, that, I could have, you know, I, it, that's obvious to me, right? But like the way they say it, it sounds like they're so wise. And that comes across as like, oh, I really trust this guy because he sounds like he's putting a lot of thought into what they're saying, right? And it's a public speaking skill. Correct. Like you have to be very, it's, you know, people are more likely to believe in you if your body language is, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it is expressing confidence. If it's expressing, you know, uh, I know what I'm talking about. I'm giving this a lot of thought. For if, if you, if you like, you, you know, you should move your, your, your feet when, when you box. No, no one's going to believe you. Like oh, this guy clearly does. Like, it's nothing to do with wisdom. It's like going going on a debate and stuttering. You're yeah, done. Yeah. It, you, you could be you're probably right. It might be right, but no one's gonna think you want to debate because you were stuttering the whole time. Where this other guy who's eloquent might be full of it, completely wrong, but he speaks with confidence when he delivers his message. And a coach has to be that guy the entire time, twenty four hours a day. Like there's not a, even when they're when they're eating, not just coaching when they're eating when they're out for like for dinner. He has to be that guy the whole time because he's being judged the whole time. Yeah, and I think there's another element to that as well, which is the fact that all the fighters are always vying for, like, this alpha male status, right? Correct. And as the coach, you are supposed to be the alpha. Yeah. You're the guy that knows everything. You're handing down the knowledge so that they can one day be in your spot. You know, that's happening in there, whether they, they acknowledge it or not, you know, because you're the leader as a coach. So, you know, in animals, leaders are always being challenged. Yeah. The alpha is always being challenged, and he always has to reassert himself when the situation calls for it. So, likewise, as a coach, we're in the same thing, whether we like it or not, you know. And, like, if you roll with one guy and he beats the crap out of you in front of everybody, everybody's going to be like, hmm. Is this the new leader? Yeah. The yeah. new leader or is the coach done? You know, like, he's no longer good it, anymore? It's crazy, you know? but yeah. it really is animal behavior. Yeah. It's like a, you're, you're a gorilla and a pack of gorillas, and, you know, if this guy's outdoing you with his social intelligence... He's like challenging your leadership. It's not just physical. Yeah, it has to do with social intelligence. It has to do with how you do. And it's and it's you know any every coach knows maybe not worded the way we're wording it, but like they know what we're talking about yeah. because it's constantly happening. If you're a manager, I manage the same thing. Other managers will constantly try to get in there and go like, "Hey, I'm smarter than the guy you got. I got you, man." You know, and it really what's going on is like you're they're they're trying to like establish a hierarchy. Like I am superior to the guy. Next, you know, next to me or whatever. Yeah, and it's very, it's very strange. But like, it, gyms are very such primal environments. That's what it's so yeah. fascinating to observe. It's like it's you, you really feel like you know you're in this this bunch of cavemen, and and it's you know people are constantly challenging each other. And there is a hierarchy. Yeah, there's for a pecking sure. order, and you have to respect the pecking order. And there's always that guy that if he moves up the the pecking order too quickly, he is he starts causing problems. People don't like him all of a sudden because he's moving up too quickly. You know, or maybe he poses a challenge to the alpha male. Or he poses a challenge to the, the the guy who's the beta male, the second guy in charge. You know, and gym owners have had this problem. I've had this problem before. Because if I leave the gym, it's, I don't have this problem anymore because I finally solved it, right? I've, yeah. I have a chain of command in there now. But I didn't believe in these things. Ten years ago, I'm like, this is stupid. I don't believe in that. So I take off for like two or three weeks for seminars, right? And there's this one guy who believes he should be in charge because he's known me longest. This other guy... He should be in charge because he's been a world champion. Well, this other guy really should be in charge because he's the one who teaches most classes. Well, but I'm the oldest. Well, but I've been here longer. <laughs> Everyone's got a reason why they believe they're yeah. second in command, right? So if I'm there, I guess it's not a problem. But the second you leave, all of a sudden people start like, oh, who's the one? In well, it should be me. So as when you learn quickly, you know, through 
experience that if you're not present, you have to have a very, very clear chain of, very similar to a military, a chain yeah. of command. If the general's out, we know who's in charge. There's no like question who's going to be in charge in case the general's not around, right? Exactly. There's and a reason why they come up with these things. You know what yes, because I mean? <laughs> it works. Yeah. And you got to really, you know, you have to admire military because they they have a system exactly because it works. And th- them winning is crucial for the survival of the entire civilization. Yes. So you can't just you can't just go, oh, this is just like a game, and if we lose, it's okay. Like, no, it's important that we develop a system, a chain of command that is highly, highly efficient under pressure. Right or in, in this case, war. So it, whatever they came up with is probably the best that we have to offer. You ever hear about army ants? Yes. Like they, they form battalions. Have you ever seen that? Like there's videos of this stuff. Like they for, it's, it's, it's almost like medieval warfare. It's incredible. It, it's like nature's way of like what is the best way of organizing ourselves to go against other insects, and they form like they come up with conclusions that are very similar to our conclusions. Like this is probably the best format there is for fighting. You know. In large numbers. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I wasn't sure about the battalions, but I know they have, it's like one of those, like bees, they have hierarchies and whatnot, yeah. but they also have certain ants that serve as waypoints that they're like, they, they could create tunnels or whatnot. And yeah. Other ants are doing different, everything has a different job. Yeah. yeah. So it's very interesting. And yeah, you don't I, want I, to get in the way of an army. No, ant. no. They're, 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 but it's like, yeah. it's like nature's way of like, we have found the most sophisticated means of combat. Yeah. Right. And I think our military is an expression of that. Like, what it, what are the most the most efficient way of outperforming a highly efficient enemy, yeah. right? And there's and it's been a selection process been going on for centuries. So yes, if they have a chain of command, which you know brings in questions a lot of, you know, the more idealistic approach to you know, government in general. You know, I've always been, I've always defined myself as a radical of democracy. And as I get older, it's like I start questioning a lot of these things. I'm like. Yeah, hierarchies are not a bad idea after all. Like, I think that they may play a bigger role in society than I would like to admit. And, like, you know, military is proof of that. Because I, I think if you get a bunch of generals in a tent to decide what we're going to do tomorrow morning, and they all have to vote, it'd be a mess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it'd be, it would be a horrible idea. It's a lot of bureaucracy. And, a, and, and, a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah. It's a very slow, it's a decision making when it's, you know, in the in democratic uh, um, a forum is, is very slow. Yeah. Because I have to voice my opinions, I have to take, and I not to match the screaming and the yelling. It turns into very quickly into like a, like a yelling match. Whereas if you have a chain of command, it's very, it's quick. But the downside to that, Dave, and you give it some thought, is that if the leader is wrong, yeah, everything, everyone suffers. Like if a bunch of people grip together, they're less likely to be wrong, even though the decision making is very slow. There's a reason why corporations have a board of directors. Yeah, because they've learned that if there's only one boss and he's making all the decisions. When he is wrong about an important decision, the whole company suffers. A board of directors is less likely to be wrong. Yeah. Even though it's a small group still, but still better than one, right? Correct. Yeah, there's, you know, checks and balances, right? Yeah. That's the whole idea. You don't want to give uh, one person all absolute power because now you're, you're saying you're at the mercy of this person. And then, as you know, someone with all that power with time can get corrupted. Correct. More likely than not, you know, so... The whole term limit. So there's a reason why everything has become the way it is. But there is, you do have to question, like, now or have we gone too far where there's so much red tape to get anything done where you can pretty much not get anything done anymore. Yeah. So everything's starting to stagnate and the changes can happen quickly enough to respond to real world situations. So, yeah, I think, in my opinion, there's too much 
bureaucracy right now. It has to be pulled back a bit. Yeah. There has it, to be a little bit more faith in the leader. But like you said, it's risky. But I, I think, think it's a if you if you observe like politics, it has been throughout, you know, modern period a pendulum between authoritarianism and democracy. And it goes back and forth because people are fed up with bureaucracy and slow decision making and they swing toward a, towards a charismatic leader. And then every now and then you end up with like, you know, individual actually does a lot of good for society. And every now and then you end up with a Hitler. <laughs> so it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a risky game you're playing because it's, it's, so, it's, it's so tempting to put all the power in the hand of one person. Right? I was watching um, Lord of the Rings yesterday yeah. with my daughters and, uh, and I was trying to like convince them that everything Harry Potter got, they took from Lord of the Rings and they didn't believe me. Like, you're going to watch Lord of the Rings and I'm going to prove you wrong. Harry Potter got everything from Lord of the Rings, right? It's just like a total copycat. And, you know, it's interesting because Tolkien was an anarchist. The ring represents political power, yeah. right? So the, the ring has to be destroyed because even the most benevolent of creatures, a hobbit, most peaceful of creatures, is corrupted by power, yeah. right? So the ring needs to be destroyed. The ring represents political power, right? And, uh, yeah, like I just, I just, I, I constantly find myself thinking about these things because I'm a gym owner, so it's on a much smaller scale. It's like, where do I draw that line between being the authoritarian leader and, like, listening to other people? Because when you're, when you're in charge, and this is the advice for gym owners, you, you can err for in, in two different ways. You cannot listen at all, which is horrible, yeah. or you can listen too much. And that's just as bad. Because yeah. if you take everyone's advice, you're trying to make everyone happy. And we all know what happens when you try to please everyone, right? It's a recipe for disaster. And I learned this the hardest way. I want to make everyone like me. I want everyone to like me. Horrible idea. Some people aren't going to like you. That's okay. Move on. Yeah. Uh, you, you know that's the thing that you can't please everybody and even like when it comes to with our elections and whatnot you might get the leader that you wanted the republican or you wanted the democrat you yeah. got the other one but at the end of the day you put up with it yeah and you're like well you hope that whatever they did that well maybe i was wrong let's put our power behind this guy because yeah. i'm in this <laughs> country so i wanted to yeah. win you know it's kind of like it's true yeah. it's true because I, you know I, and i find myself like i i didn't vote for trump i wouldn't but I find myself like, I want him to do a good job. Like, I try, sometimes it's a part of me, he'll say shit. And I'm like, that dude, like, that's outlandish. Please don't open your I think he opens his mouth, he pisses me off. But, like, it, it, you know, from a practical standpoint, the truth of the matter is if you live here and he's your president, and he is your president if you live here, yeah. why would you not support him? You want him to do well. Yeah. And same thing on the other end. Like, why exactly. would you root against Obama if you're a Republican? It makes no sense. Like, you want the guy to do well. Him doing well. Means benefits everybody. everyone, Correct. right? Like if he's a horrible president, who do you think is gonna, you know, we? So I, I think at some point the partisanship is is just counterproductive for the country as a whole. For sure, you know, it's like a, I think I heard this from Brian Tracy. He has this old joke where two Swedes are in a boat and they're rowing, yeah. and the boat starts to sink. And he goes, "Oh no, we're, we're gonna drown." He goes, "Well, it's not my boat." <laughs> so yeah you know we're in this country we're yeah. on the boat you know so we want everybody whoever's elected like please do well kill it, you know, yeah. kill it. like prove yeah. me wrong you know what i mean yeah. like, i have my ideas but, but the thing is when people get so passionate about the identity politics thing and then they 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 it's like the economy's failing and they're cheering like yes i told you see i was right the <laughs> horrible president like that's not good you yeah. know like you're you're in this boat now it doesn't matter we just gotta you know you gotta roll together i guess um, it's funny, a little, little caveat about the, uh, this podcast, guys. Me and Dave originally sat down to talk about the history of jiu-jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got there yet. <laughs> Not even close. We're talking about Donald Trump and Barack Obama. 
We won't get to the history of jujitsu. Uh, we might as well go into it. Might, might as well go yeah. into it. Like, and, and, it's, and this is why I love this is, even if we had one listener, Dave, or a million listeners, like, I, I enjoy this because it's so organic. We and me and Dave like literally sit down like right before we're about to go live, right before Dave's about to press record and he goes, what are we going to talk about? And we're like, oh, and we'll, something will come up, right? And I had found, uh, I was going through some of my files because the, the documentary team that we're working on, they were asking for the article where George Gracie fought Tico Soledad, right? And that fight was to took place in 1933 and it is, and I found that article and that's I posted on my Instagram the other day and that's like, oh, let's talk about this, right? So that fight is arguably the first MMA fight or Valetudo fight in modern history. Of 1933? 1933. Because if you take into consideration, you know, the Greek pancreation, yeah, it's it pretty much MMA, even yeah. more hardcore, to, you know, to the death in some cases. Gladiators fought too. So, you know, it's not fair to say it's the first MMA fight in history, right? But in modern history, because these cross fights, this is another thing we talked about briefly, this whole wrestling versus jiu-jitsu. Yes. This, is, this goes back to the 1800s. You know, Japanese come into the United States to fight American wrestlers and vice versa. A really good book on it, Craze by Roberto Pedreira. The same guy who wrote Shockey. They're on Amazon. It's called mm. Craze, Volume 1 and 2. And they talk about this, this exchange between, you know, how wrestling influenced judo, judo influenced wrestling, catch wrestling influencing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu influencing catch wrestling, right? Or Brazilian judo, the more appropriate term. And you know, and then I found to find this article, 1933, George Gracie, uh, who was the first hero of the Gracie family. This is you know at a time where Helio was just getting started, right, just getting his feet wet. Uh, Carlos was never much of a fighter. You know, he fought once professionally that that we have recorded. He controversial match, but officially he lost, and then he got overturned. So some people say he won, some people say he lost. We can get into that some other time. But George was the first hero of the family because he was a guy who was constantly fighting, and he agreed to a fight. Uh, with Chico Soledad, because the way MMA was geared then, they, they called it valendo tudo, like anything goes, right? Yeah. Is they would get together the day before the fight and go, what are the rules? You do capoeira, I do judo. What are we going to do? Oh, okay, you can kick, but you have to wear a gi. No, I don't want to wear a gi. Oh, then you can't kick. So they were like, the commission was just like them, the coaches getting together and going, this is how, this, they would fix the rules the yeah. day before the fight, right? And George was an interesting guy to me because he was the kind of guy that go, okay, I'll go. What about this? Okay. What about elbows? Okay. What about he's heavier? Okay. What about he's not going to wear a gi? Okay. He's like, I'll fight anywhere, anyone, anytime, anywhere. He really had that sort of personality, which is why he lost a lot. But Chico Soledad was not only a lot heavier, but they agreed to a rule set that was basically, I mean, it was more extreme than UFC. Yeah. Elbows, headbutts, I think eye gouging. I can't remember the exact rules, but like there was like no biting, no eye gouging. But it was pretty much... The kind of MMA you were watching out of, you know, UFC Brazil, one, even pri- yeah, even UFC one, like the IVC. You remember that? Yep, yep, yep. IVC had a little net around the ring. If you don't know <laughs> what we're talking about, you're new to MMA. <laughs> I've seen some yeah, of Chuck That's... Liddell was fighting yeah. like he would fly down to Brazil to fight like Jose Pele, and like the the ring had like a net around it. And if you got your head stuck in that net, oh. you were screwed. You could. There's no way you're getting your head out of there. And I've seen some where they would even choke you with the ring rope. Oh, fuck. I saw what I I forgot who it was. was I think it was a famous fighter, but he actually got the rope, wrapped it around, and choked the guy. And the the ref's like, yeah, Yeah, anything goes. (laughs) That's (laughs) crazy. But, yeah, man. So, anyway, so they fought, and then uh, George won. uh, Chico's legend gave up. I can't remember the exact reason, but I think he. Was he of a. I don't know if it was a tap or it was like uh, the the corner thrown in the towel. I can't remember how he ended it. Was he a Luta Libre? 
I don't know his background. The thing is, like, anyone who was fighting would just claim a style. They weren't necessarily skilled at that style. Gotcha. It was just like, I'm this guy, I'm that guy. And all of a sudden, you're like, you're rooting for that style because, because that's, that's your style. Yeah, exactly. yeah, okay. But, I, I mean, technically, it was very, very, you know, it was, no, it was not very sophisticated. These guys were laying the... The, the paving the way for us, right? Correct. So it's so easy for a modern MMA fighter to go, those guys suck. Yeah, because the best techniques have been selected for you. Don't give yourself credit, buddy. Someone yeah. else did that for you, you know? But uh, it's, uh, it's a piece of history that I think that it's almost like forgotten. It's so interesting to me because that fight right there is pretty much what got the ball rolling, right? Like there's cross-style fighting had existed. Like capoeiras were fighting judokas and there was a lot of that, Greco-Romans and Grinch boxers. That was, that was happening, but that was the first time where, the, I mean, arguably the first time where they got together and go and they Everything. went, oh, you do whatever the hell you want. I'll do whatever I want. Let's fight, right? And that right there is what, you know, got the ball rolling. And today we have UFC, Bellator, one championship. And my suspicion is that most fans for sure don't, but even the promoters and the people in the industry, they don't realize that the, this history that gives them a job has... As, you know, it's it's a long history, almost 100 years old now. Yeah. Right? So, you know, part of the reasons we're doing this documentary is trying to, like, revive that story and give these guys some credit. I think it's a great thing. It's I have all my fighters, like, okay, watch UFC 1. And when they watch it, they're like, whoa, what? These guys suck. They can, no, yeah. no, no. They, they have the, not that they suck, but they, they watch and, like, you could grab the hair, knee yeah. in the balls, and do all this. Yeah, yeah. And there was no time limit. It was just going to... It sounds it, insane. Now, it sounds totally nuts, yeah. right? But that's how it was back then, you know? Like, uh, I remember watching UFC 1, and was it the... Uh, I think it was a Swiss or Dutch kickboxer that... No, it was a uh, Sabate, a French Sabate guy that yeah. kicked the sumo wrestler, and his tooth is flying. You can see out. the tooth yeah. flying. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of the teeth got lodged in his foot, believe it or not, and he got a massive infection later on. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's another side story to it. But uh, yeah, I remember watching like, holy crap, <laughs> this is crazy. That's yeah. intense. But it's it's very, very different. I That was one of, I think, my first introduction to MMA. Before that, I wasn't doing anything. And shortly after that, I started doing Jeet Kune Do. And it was like Bruce Lee. Which was, it had a yeah. lot, of, it had an MMA tune to it, right? Because Bruce sure. Lee did, I, I think Bruce Lee, I think he's the, he gets deified as this like demigod that he can just beat anyone. It's like, but I do, I, I, he was an actor at the end of the day, but I do give him credit for one thing. He was ahead of his time. Because yeah. there's a one move, I think it's Ender the Dragon, he's got MMA gloves on. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they look like MMA gloves. They're, they're using the Kempo gloves, which are but, like the big. But it means you can yeah. grab. You can that grab. Is yeah. so that it, it gives you an idea. And I, I remember like one of his movies, he's doing arm bars and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So he had an understanding that a fight goes well beyond just strikes, which to me at the time at least was very advanced. Yes, for sure. And he was already coming up with the idea that, you know, Jeet Kune Do is the style without style, right? Yeah. You know, like you do anything that works. So Correct. that concept is MMA, yeah. MMA, right? Because a lot of the, even when MMA started for America, which is a UFC, it wasn't MMA yet. In fact, the term didn't exist. Remember, it was called NHB, No Holds Barred, no which bar, is the Balatudo equivalent in yeah. English, you know? And, uh, but it was all about proving which style was better. And that was the whole point behind the, the Gracies pushing it, yeah. you know? Uh, but even like for the first, probably like, 30 or 40 UFCs, people were still rooting for a wrestler. I remember like 
when I first started, when I was doing Jikondo, I'm like, oh, I want the Jikondo guy to win, but like he never won. <laughs> right. And yeah. then I got into wrestling. Oh, I want the wrestlers like Dan Seven, Mark Coleman yeah. to win, you know? But uh, everybody had, we're still rooting for styles. And it was only like midway through, people start like, you know what? To be the best, we got to do everything, you know? Because it, if you don't watch those early UFCs, you don't see the progression of combat, right? Because yeah. I think it's very important to watch it. Start from UFC 1 and move all the way up. And at least the first 20 or so, because you're going to see grappling dominates early in. And then there's a shift. And then wrestling starts to win. Yes. And then striking wins. Yeah. And grappling comes back. And then there's a back and forth struggle. And uh, I think, for one, it shows that grappling is the most dominant form by itself. Correct. Because it's, if you don't know how to clinch or you don't know how to go on the ground, your ignorance is just really yeah. one-on-one on one, everything being equal one-on-one on one, we're fighting in the streets if you had to choose it'd be grappling right I'm, i think most few people i think most strikers probably admit that yeah. but other situations when it comes to self-defense at least and i've gotten so much shit about saying this before yeah is that for example if i'm in a club and my boys are fucking getting beat up over there and there's like 15 of those and like seven of us brazilian jiu-jitsu is the worst style <laughs> like if there's like five of them and like three of us, why would you want to grapple? Boxing right. is the best style. Yeah, you want to hit and run, hit and run, hit and run. You don't want to be hanging out, man. Yeah, like you don't want to be. Would you, why would you put a rear naked choke on someone when you got to fight three of his other of his friends? Yeah, you're it's, gonna, the, it's a horrible idea. You're gonna be on the ground on your back with the guy on top of you. So even when you choke him out, you have to move him off of you. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you're getting soccer kicked. And meanwhile, the other guy's waking up. Yeah. <laughs> you got <laughs> to yeah. fight him again. Yeah, just in case if you watch movies, yeah. you get choked unconscious, you're yeah. not out for 30 minutes. No, you're no. out for like five seconds, yeah. you know, and then yeah. you're back up. There's <laughs> so one thing I watch, oh, it annoys me so much. We'll watch a movie with my girlfriend, and she's a doctor, so when she sees medical errors, she's like, yeah. oh, I hate this. Yeah. And I see like fighting errors, like, oh, God. Like, you see someone chokes him out, oh, he's going to be gone for 30 minutes. And he actually says that, and he walks out, I'm like, Unless you kill them or give them a stroke, he's going to be back I, up. It's when I can't watch fighting movies. Everyone wants me to watch John Wick, and I haven't. I can't do it, man. Like, it's too Even if the plot is amazing, just because I know there's going to be a fight scene there, I'm like, I'm not going to watch it. It's, just, it's kind of painful to me. Because I, I, whenever they do something realistic, and some of the movies you can see them having a little more grappling. I just saw episode three or four of The Mandalorian. It's on Disney+. Plus. Oh, okay. It's like the Star Wars like, series. Yeah, I've seen the Baby Yoda going around there. Right? Baby Yoda's awesome. <laughs> and like Gina Carano's in there. And oh, she's nice. fighting the guy. He's, he looks like Boba Fett. He's not Boba Fett, but he's yeah. a Mandalorian, right? So he's got the same uniform or armor or whatever. And, you know, they're grappling. And you can see, like, Gina Carano does, like, a Tomoe Nagi on, you know, The Mandalorian. And it's pretty cool to see real fighting being incorporated into Hollywood. I think yeah. that's awesome. But it's not enough. So for me to see like some, you know, I don't know, some of that BS. I'm not going to mention martial arts and names, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just like watching that. It's just like, no, get, you know, I can't do it, man. I can't do it. Um, I guess it's like your girl, like seeing medical because your girl's a psychiatrist right yeah which we got to bring her on her one of these days we keep talking about it yeah yeah but uh she did two years as an orthopedic resident so she's done surgeries yeah. and all that stuff her dad's an orthopedic surgeon so she'll see things and then she's like that will never happen i can't watch this anymore yeah. no it is painful man if yeah. you're in the industry and you know the game it is very painful to watch some of this stuff yeah so she always gets surprised when she sees things that are like a very detailed and nuanced and they get it right she's like oh they had they consulted somebody because if you're really into yeah. a field any field uh i think that you know 
you can spot someone that knows what they're talking about very quickly. Like I have like a radar for this shit. I swear to God, Gabe. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm never wrong. Like I can talk to these guys. Oh, I've been grappling for so many years. You know, five minutes. Yeah, I can tell because they'll say stuff that someone who's been trained for a long time would never say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or they'll believe stuff that someone who's been trained for a long time would never believe. Only like someone who's like a beginner or maybe intermediate level, the equivalent of like a blue or purple belt would believe. You know, anyone who's been trained for more than ten years would never say something like that. You know, it's funny, but like I can, I can spot them like very quickly. Yeah, no, I've had a guy once come up to me and tell me, come to my gym and says, "Oh, I was a, an Olympic wrestling alternate," and to be an Olympic level wrestler, even an alternate, you're phenomenal, incredible, absolutely. And if you're gonna grapple, wrestle with me, high school wrestler that never even made state, should toy with you. Yeah, you should wipe the mats with me. Yeah, and I was throwing them around like a rag doll. I'm like. It's like, no way. <laughs> no, and, but just yeah. like you said, like the aura is not there either, right? Because yeah. there's a lo- there's a level of confidence that you would have, whether it'd be shown as like cocky or yeah. just like really assured. You know, yeah, you like know, the people display it differently. Yeah, yeah. But there's a display, right? And I want to talk about that because that's so. You're right about this. It's because people do display it differently. The guy can be goofy. Yeah, he can be a goofball. Like he can be like, for example, like, you, you, hang, you hang out with Forrest Griffin. He's like he's he's a, he's a walking goofball, man. Like the guy, he's constantly hilarious. You can't. But at the same time, he gives you a vibe that, motherfucker, I'm tough as it gets. Yeah. Like, you cannot break me with 10 punches. You can punch me in the face 20 times and you wouldn't break me. You know, but he does give that, even if you didn't know who he was, he does give you that vibe while being very goofy at the same time, right? And then you get the guy who's like just a quiet guy. Like, you know, like Marcel is a kind of quiet guy. He's yeah. like, doesn't, you can't get the guy to smile. And everyone's like, fuck, man, that guy's kind of scary. He never <laughs> smiles, right? He gives that vibe to people. It's like, people are constantly telling me that he scares people, you know? But. You know, but just because the guy's quiet doesn't mean he's, he exhales that that confidence. It's very hard to describe. Yeah, I think women pick that up on men when guys are trying to act confident in front of women. Women pick it up so quickly. So maybe we, we can we should have to get a woman to explain this because they can pick up a confident guy so quickly. And I wonder if it has to do with body language, the I tone of your voice. I was actually talking to my girlfriend about that. I think we had mentioned it oh. in a previous podcast and she was saying that, yeah, women read body language much better the than men do. men do. I believe that. And I, I think we were talking about the reasoning why, evolution-wise or whatnot, but ultimately, like, yeah, they do read body language better so they can look and that's why women usually can spot liars <laughs> better because yeah. you have body cues that you do whether you're like looking the wrong way or your shoulders are shrugged or you can't make eye contact because there's a shame, yeah. you know, so they can spot that out better, I think. But yeah, someone who's posing is usually, it's... Yeah, here's the thing. If, yeah. if you're really good at something, you don't have to ever brag about it. Right. I, I feel that way. You know, it's almost like you don't have to flex. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, like, it's funny. Like, when in fighting, like, I get that. I get that because it's, I'm, I feel that when I, I'm talking to a guy, I can know this guy really knows what he's talking about. This guy's a badass. And he doesn't have to look the part. He doesn't have to talk. And just, you just can tell. Yeah. I just know this guy knows what he's talking about. And I know it very quickly. But other fields, I mean, I don't know shit about cars. Mechanics <laughs> fool me very quickly too. Like, oh, it's eight hundred dollars. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> you know, I believe you. Like, I got, I got a quote. Do some work in the house the other day, and like, okay, okay. Now I've learned finally. Like, get at least three quotes yes. for everything. Everything. But I, when you don't know yeah. about construction, mechanics, or whatever, like, you don't you have no idea. Yeah, I tell people all the time. I get multiple quotes, like you said. Three or four, like you're not wasting your time. You're saving potentially, depending how big the project is, tens of thousands of dollars. I had a Correct. quote to do um, a remodel, and the first guy shot me out forty eight thousand. 
and then like I think that's high. Like no, and then like later on, it came out to twenty eight thousand. Yeah. yeah. If I if I would have just took the guy's face value, I just lost twenty grand. Almost double. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. So like you never know what people. Like, everybody has a different game, and like a lot of times here in the Western world, you don't negotiate as much because you're used to retail stores, and you just walk in. Oh, this is the price. That's true. You take it and you go right. But like in other cultures, like um, in Asia particularly, there's a lot of bargaining going on. There, there's no price is solid. You know. Even here, you can bargain, but people don't realize you can. Like I've, I've gone once to get a pair of shoes that were 80 bucks, and it says retail, 80 bucks. Yeah. I'm like, I'll get it for 60. And then they go, let me talk to the manager. Boom, and you get it. You know, like, and the worst thing that happens is they go, no. Okay, then I take it or I, I leave it, you know? Those guys can do salespeople, and they're really good. They can read you, read you too. I was very bad a couple years ago. I was in Turkey for a seminar, a camp. Yeah. And I went to this bazaar in Istanbul. It's really famous because it's like, I don't know how old it is. It's really old, man. But it's, it's got some really cool stuff. You get some China stuff there too. But it's got some really fake antiques, probably some real antiques too. But So I walk into this store and there's this uh, world map, but everything is written in Arabic and it looks like it's 500 years old. Now, I know that this was this is like five days old. <laughs> right, it's not 500 years old, but it looks like it is. It yeah. looks really cool. Plus, they're selling it for like I don't know what it was like $30 or something, $40. So it can't be, uh, but they make it look original and they tell you it's original, you know, and you yeah. go with it because you're in Turkey and you're Istanbul and it's a really cool map. I actually got it in my little library. And I'm like bargaining with this guy because I know I'm supposed to bargain, like they're expecting you to do that, yeah. right? And I'm, I'm just like playing hardball. No, I wanted to pay, I can't remember the price, but like I want to pay 30 for it. It's like, no, it's 40. And we kept going back and forth. I'm like, I'm going to walk out. And this guy's going to go. Any minute now. You know, I goodbye. And I walk out. And this guy's going to come get me. He's going to come get me. He's going to come get me. Like, where is he? I'm walking out of the store. I look behind me. He's like back in there, like talking to other people. I'm like, God damn, it didn't work. So I'm like, I start hanging out in front of that store for the next like 10 minutes. See if he comes after me. And he does it. I'm like, son of a bitch. This guy knows what he's doing. But he knew that I wanted that map. I'm convinced. He, it's, he knew I was going to come back. Yeah. Sure enough, you know, I walked back in there. I go, I didn't even borrow this time. Okay, here you go, 40 bucks, right? And I bought it. But I think deep down he knew that I, like, the way I looked at it, the way I held it, the way I was talking about it, like yeah. this guy is not leaving without this. You know, no, they had the experience, man. They deal with this all day. So they're black belts at selling you fake antiques, you know? Well, I mean, any vendor is like that, right? So you have to be able to walk away from it, right? Like yeah. what you did, what they call the walk away close, where yeah. you just walk away and then you're hoping that they're going to go, oh, wait, wait, oh, wait. I was convinced yeah. he was yeah. going to like touch me in the shoulder. Like it's going to happen. Like you give 10 seconds, he's going to come after me. Yeah. Nothing. I, I, I do a few tactics for negotiating. If I, I, like normally I'm not really hardballing, but first you ask for whatever price it is. Yeah. And then you go, what's the best that you can do? That's an easy one because people can always do a little better. So they'll give you something. And if you want to squeeze a little more out of it, then a simple thing, you just walk away close. So it's like anybody can do that. You don't need to be like charismatic or have confidence or anything. So like if you're like, uh, I just did it for, I had to replace something in my AC to get it fixed, AC motor. And they shot me a price. It was like 380. I'm like, what's the best price you can do? And they're like, uh, let me talk to my manager. Come back. And then they're like, uh, 325. Okay, easy. Right? I, I mean, I was doing this over the phone. I can't walk away. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I could hang up, but yeah. you lose the effect. That you can't, they can't really call you back, you know? But if you're in the store, you can just do that, and it's a very simple thing to do. But Anybody it, can do it. It's, it requires a lot of sensitivity from, from the parties. The better you are at this game. I'm not good. I'm the kind of guy I tend to like, hey, this guy's so, such, a, such a nice guy. I like him so much. He wouldn't screw me over. You know, I'm that guy. 
Uh, I think Frank was here. He was talking about like he's that way too. That's why he brings his wife with yes, him. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's like, just... and they're like, oh, it makes a lot of sense, man, because you know the wife is gonna battle for every penny. <laughs> like that's her money too. Yeah, yeah. So she's gonna battle for every dime. Where my dumbass, I just go, okay, whatever you think is best. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I can get better at overtime, I guess, but it, it is a skill, no doubt. For sure. You know, you just gotta flex it every so often and practice it. Like I, where I started doing that, I think I read. I actually think it was Donald Trump Jr. He was on a. I forget which book it was, but he wrote like a. I guess you know, like the appendix and whatnot. He had a little aftermath, and he talked about a story, um, where they were giving him chores when they were kids, him and his brother. And I guess Donald Trump Sr. told, oh, you got to mow the lawn. And he was getting paid like 10 bucks to mow the lawn. And then he found out that the brother was getting paid 20. And he goes, oh, how come he's getting 20? Yeah. As well, he asked. Yeah. It's like, son of a bitch. And that's true. Yeah. The, 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 what's it go? Like the, the saying goes, the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't yeah. that true? Yeah, yeah. it is. But... And, I, and I'm not the squeaky wheel. I end up like letting things fly. And then I'm the guy getting paid 10 bucks. I'm like, what the hell? You know, but, you know, it, it is, you have to. It's it's a fight, man. You got to battle for every inch. Yeah. You know, you you wouldn't let someone get an underhook in jujitsu and like, oh, you know, what do I do now? You know, you, yeah, you, 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 you exactly. <laughs> you're fighting for every little inch. You know, you got to do that in every aspect of your life. Because the end of the day, man, I think about this a lot. You know, you want to live in this world where oh, we're not competing with each other. We are. Yeah. Everyone's competing against everyone. You know, it doesn't mean you have to be dishonest. It doesn't mean you have to be a piece of shit. But at the end of the day, you're in competition, and competition is pretty ruthless. And the, the competition is good for you because it strengthens it you. It strengthens you, correct. Right? But you and have that to, is a value. That, yeah. that is a, I think it's, we don't see strength as a value. People see compassion as a value, right? They see ethics and honesty as a value. And there are values. Yes. But so is strength. Yep. You know, and yeah, I think they, strength, we're in an era where being strong is almost like, oh, you're not supposed, I'm not talking about physical strength. I'm talking about yeah, social, social intellectual, whatever, yeah. emotional, yeah. all of it. Like yeah. it is a quality. But it's almost like we've been taught that that's bad. It's almost like we swung so hard the other way, where yeah. you're not supposed to be strong, you know? Yeah, you know, like if you look at any like Disney movie, who's the villain? He's some rich mogul. Yeah. Right? And it's like, okay, yes, there are rich people who you can say unethical or whatnot, yeah. but is every rich person an evil person? Like, no, no. you know, there's yeah. a lot. It's a stereotype. <laughs> Correct. It's a huge stereotype, yeah. but it's kind of going from like, the old days where the church would say, oh, it's easier for the poor person to go through heaven than, I, I, I'm butchering that, you probably know it better than me, but. To walk through the, the head of the needle. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's. A camel to walk through the head of the needle than a poor, a rich man getting to heaven. Exactly, yeah. you know, so it's like, it's, it, to me, it's kind of like pandering to poor people because yeah. there's more of them, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, okay, we're going to give you a silver lining, you know. But uh, uh, Nietzsche would argue, and I, I've always liked Nietzsche, I've been like a philosopher that I've always enjoyed because he, he saw all of this, right, early in the 1800s, and he swung the other way. It's like, this is what's going to happen if you guys go down this route, right? And he kind of predicted a lot of the social problems that we're having today, like weakness as, as a form of strength. And he called, you know, that sort of morality the morality of the weak, mm. right? So the strong is the guy who has more money, more, you know, he's got more assets than you, he does better than you. So therefore, you must be evil because you have more than me. And he calls the opposite the slave morality. So if you're a slave, if you're the one doing all of the hard, if you're, if you're the one who's under the guy who's all wealthy, right, then you victimize yourself and you reward yourself when you die. That's Nietzsche's approach to it. That's his explanation for religion. You reward yourself. So I'm the victim in life and I will be rewarded in my afterlife, right? And that's why the slave morality has to vilify 
successful people. Of course, you know, there's another side to that too. A yeah. lot of you know people who are poor are victimized, and a lot of people who are wealthy, yes, they leverage their wealth to create more wealth, and they're not always honest about it. But the interesting thing about this discussion is that it's not a one or the other, Dave. That's what people get wrong. To me, to me at least, to me, it's like they, they can coexist. It's a balance, you know. Not every rich person is a piece of shit, and not every poor person is a victim. Yeah, you know. And then you know you have to be able to create have the, the judgment to know when is when one is the case and when the other one is the case. Whereas I feel that, at least in, you know, going back to politics, people swing one way or the other. It's always this or it's always that. And we have this dualistic view of the world where it's always black or white, and the world's so much more complicated. It's almost yeah. like they're watching a Disney cartoon, talking about Disney cartoons, yeah. and their view of the world's like a Disney cartoon. There's good, which is me. Yeah. Whatever side of the fence I'm <laughs> exactly. on, I'm always good, right? Yeah. Bad is always the person who disagrees with me, regardless of what side of the fence they are, right? So, and that those are the values. Those are the only two values, good and bad. It's just very simplistic, you know, dualistic kind of interpretation of everything. And the truth of the matter is people are so much more complex than that, right? We do live in gray area. Neither of us are black and white, man. You've had moments where you've probably done stuff that you go, oh, I probably wasn't right there, or things that you're not proud of. I know sure. I have a few of them, yeah. more than a few. But, you know, we all do. But, like, you know, we all, we're all within the spectrum of what it is to be a person, what it is to be a human. We're not... We're not this or that. Yeah. Like, I hate when people call, oh, that guy's a liar. I'm like, well, who isn't? Who's never lied? Yeah. Who has never, like, everyone's a liar. We all lie. The, you know, some lie more than others, true, but we all there, lie. There, there's a lot of different ways to lie. I have made a concerted effort for a long time to always be as honest as possible, but to say that I've never lied would be a lie. <laughs> you, you lie <laughs> but, without realizing. Yeah, You're not you, even aware of you, most of your you, lies. A lot of lies are just by omission, Yeah. right? Like. People assume something and you never correct the assumption, you know, that's a lie, you know, by omission, you know. And especially if you know the person has another viewpoint that where they think you're thinking yeah. in one way and you don't correct them. You know, so technically you didn't lie, but you kind of did. But you know why yeah. we lie though? Lying is strategical. There's a reason why we lie. It's huge social benefits to lying. So I read a book and it really it was like one of the most impacting books I've ever read in my life. I would recommend it, but it kind of fucks with your head too. So I kind of don't recommend it at the same time. <laughs> but I'll mention it. If you want to go through with it, it's called The Folly of Fools by Robert Trivers, right? And the Folly of Fools goes like this. Basically, the logic of self-deception in human nature. You're constantly lying to yourself, whether you realize or not, because lying to yourself means you're a better liar to other people. Like politicians who lie, it's not that they're lying. They've convinced themselves of that lie, right? So the best way to get someone to... For your lie to fly under their radars is to convince yourself of the lie first, yes. right? So if a lie benefits you, benefits you um, emotionally, financially, socially, politically, if it benefits you in some way, you're going to hide it from yourself so it better flies under the radar. And whether you realize it or not, you constantly start doing this, right? So I start. I read this book and I go, I'm going to start calling my own bullshit. I start like analyzing everything I was doing. I'm like, am I wrong here? Am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong here. So. I'll give an example. You know, you get into fights with your girlfriend, your yeah, wife, whatever. Sure. And this is what was happening. You get into a fight, boom. And then you go, you know what? I'm going to acknowledge my 50% of the guilt. Whatever that number is, if it's 40, 60, if you can quantify it like that. Let's right. say 50 yeah. for argument's sake. And you're going to go, boom. All right, I'm guilty of this right here. All of you, What you're doing is you're taking a step to the middle to meet that person, right? Assuming that person's going to do the same. Yeah. And that other person goes, Okay. <laughs> so, wait, wait a second. So now, what was 50% of the guilt turns into 100%. Yeah. Now I'm at a huge deficit, right? Because now I'm dealing with someone who takes no uh, 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 share, doesn't take their share of the blame. 
I'm 100% guilty of the problem now, even though I may be not get, you know, very small guilt or, you know, yeah. whatever, let's say 50 for argument's sake. And that puts me to such a disadvantage in dealing with everyone. Imagine like every relationship you have, you're 100% guilty all the time because you're the one being honest enough to actually acknowledge that you're wrong or the part that you're wrong at least. Now, how well do you think you're going to do in the world that way? If you're always that honest guy and no one else take, no one else do the same, because it works well if everyone's being honest. Can yeah. you guarantee the effort from the other person? Because you're making an effort. It's hard to be honest, but you're at such a disadvantage by being honest—a social disadvantage—and that hurts you financially, emotionally, politically, socially. And it's like one of those things. Like I understand why Mother Nature created lying, because it makes it makes sense. You bet. You can think about like yeah. successful people. I, I'm, I'm convinced, man, like way up there at the high echelons of society, you don't get a lot of honest people. I don't, I think it's, I think there's some wealthy, rich, uh, honest people. I'm not saying that, you know, if you can quantify that simply. But for the most part, man, I think that it's almost like you have to be great at bullshitting yourself, that you're the better person, that you're the good person, that you're always right, and, you know, that you're, you know, you're that guy that can't do wrong. And if you can bullshit yourself, then people are more likely to believe you. Yeah, well, I think, like, for example, I tell you, I try to be as honest as possible. Like, But there is a point where it wouldn't make sense to do that. For example, if you're going to kill me because of a certain belief, at least to me, yeah. my prime goal is to survive. Yes. I'll lie, say whatever you want, just so I can get out of there. Correct. And I'll continue being the real person I am. I just survived the encounter. You know, like, when I see people who died because, you know, like, back in the day, oh, renounce your religion and... I'm like, man, I would have renounced in a heartbeat. Oh, nope, nope. Earth is flat a thousand percent. If our guy the leg, I'll be like, nope, flat it is. Yeah. If that's all it took, yeah. you know, like it was just acknowledging whatever you want me to say yeah. and I didn't have to do anything else. Like, dude, that's easy. That's when a lot of people argue that torture doesn't work yeah. because you'll conf confess anything under torture. Yeah. Did you, certain... did you kill JFK? A hundred percent I did. You, don't, you, can, you didn't even have to start the, the torture. I confess anything. Just as soon as I saw those torture tools, I'd be like, nope. Oh, God. Yeah. I used to waterboard me, like, nope, nope, nope. I did it. I did it. I did everything. Waterboarding, uh, I don't know. So I, I do. I, I'm I, I want to know it's not claustrophobic. What's the word for um, fear of uh, water? Water phobia. Yeah, there must be hydrophobic. Yeah. Hydrophobic. Like, I, 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 it's a, to me, the most terrifying way of dying is drowning for some mm. reason. Oh, so yeah, that's sure. like waterboarding to me sounds pretty fucking scary. Yeah, at least there's no like long-term damage as far as physically true but uh like when you see stuff like uh, when i was in spain I, they had a torture museum i went with my girlfriend and you see some of this stuff it's like jesus they have like nail splitters where they'll put these things in your fingers yeah. and they would crank it up and it would slowly tear your nails apart they had one where they would put this giant metal it looked like a dog collar but the spikes were inside and they would just put it on you and then let you go yeah. and what happens is the weight of the collar over time will eventually kill you. It will, it will drop yeah. in. and But you had like a couple days walking around with this giant metal thing. I'm like, Jesus, these people were sadistic. You know what I don't understand? Like, if I had the opera, there's some people, okay, let's let's pick the worst example possible, Hitler, right? People always pick Hitler. And uh, uh, if I could torture Hitler, would I? Honestly, I wouldn't. Oh. I don't want, no, I, exactly. Either put him away, you know, you know, get him out of the, rid of him his misery. Or just, you know, keep him away from a place where he can't do people harm. But I would take no satisfaction tor torturing anyone. But I do believe that some people 
sociopath, you know, in, in general. Like they would take sure. pleasure in hurting someone. When I look at that, I'm like, what kind of evil makes you want to do that to other people? Because I can't see a situation where I would want to inflict. I would like if you know you want pedophiles away from society. You want to mm-hmm. lock them up. You want to do some. You want to, yeah. you know, you know, castrate them, get rid of their genes. You know, like you you want to do all these things. But I would not take pleasure in watching it. I don't think I can't see myself taking pleasure in watching anyone suffer. Is what right. I'm saying. To me, that says I don't. I'm not sadistic enough to want. Even though I want that person punished and removed from society, the pain inflicting pain on them. It's not something that would gratify me, I don't think. Correct. The, the ideal situation would be you're able to reform somebody, right? Like they, someone did a crime for whatever reason, and hopefully you could fix that. But if you can't, or it's irrevocably, like to me, like from what I understand about pedophiles or whatnot, it's kind of a hardwired thing. Yeah, it's, I, I yeah. strongly believe it's it's a genetic glitch. It's, it's yeah, a and I'm not a doctor or you, but yeah. from my understanding of it, it's a hardwired thing. Like, unfortunately, something went wrong and they just have this predisposition to be attracted to young people. You can't do anything with it. Get rid of them. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately, that means execution or lock up for life or whatnot. It's a, it's a crappy hand. But yeah. at the same time, uh, I, to me, it blows my mind away when they put someone in for 10 years and then they have to put the warning label afterwards, right? Because they put them on the map, right? That little whatever. There's an app for that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, because my brother, he has kids and stuff and you have kids too. And he, he looked when he moved to a new oh, area and you see like everywhere. dots everywhere. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's like, to me, it's kind of like, you put a tiger in a cage for yeah, like two weeks, and then you let him out, no, and they go, "Hey guys, no, there's a tiger right. out it's here." Worse. You know, like because you know his sexual appetite hasn't changed. Right. That's the the gross thing about this conversation. It's not like, oh, I changed my mind. I like, you know, grown women now. Like, yeah. no, that shit doesn't change, man. If you're sexually attracted to the wrong thing, whether it's an animal or whatever, you know, you, some people attract really old people. Yeah, it's their thing. Like, you want the older the better. And to me, that's weird. Yeah, but I don't think it's a choice, man. I don't think like. These, these things are choices that people yeah. make. Like, I've been attracted to women from a very young age. I remember being four or five years old. I'm like, oh, that girl's cute. I like her. Yeah. Never crossed my mind to like the little boy. Oh, the little boy's cute. And it's not a choice. It wasn't yeah. something that I chose, you know. It was just like, I am attracted to that. I don't think these people are choosing it, man. I don't think, no, if, I think I don't it's think just something they, they would, can't help. I don't think you would rationally choose something like yeah. that knowing the cost that it has, yeah. right? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, people want to be free. Right, yeah. so you can't live free with that. You're gonna get caught at some point, and then your life's gonna be a living hell. And the torture that inflicts upon you and everybody that's associated with you is immense. You know, so uh, from what I've seen, a lot of these people are like tortured souls. Some of them are. You know, like they feel that immense guilt of it. But it's kind of like if I told you, Rob, you could never have sex ever again. It's like Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad, you know. That's, that's pretty bad. bad. Let's be realistic, you know. That's pretty bad, you know. And you've seen what happens when you have people like you know priests or whatnot. Oh, yeah, you can never you know, have, you're bottling it. Yeah, like, you get all yeah, sorts of weird things going on, you know. Like I don't know who had that idea. That was a horrible, was a horrible idea. Wasn't horrible. it? Not have sex ever, yeah. and you're gonna be around like little kids for the rest of your life. Like, it's yeah. like it's a recipe for like what the hell were you people thinking, man? Yeah, the disaster, right? Like you yeah. can't bottle bodily functions that are supposed to be expressed, right? Like ultimately we are supposed to have sex to procreate, to allow yes. your genes to continue and, and so on. So like saying that you can't do that, it's like telling a computer you can't be a do computer. math. Yeah, yeah. It's, can. like, well, it's like a computer can't, can't do, do code, do yeah. math, you know? Yeah. So, Horrible idea. No, but uh, 100%, like I think that I, if we can, 
I know that we were talking about manipulating genetics. Now, there's a really good movie that I like. It's called Gattaca. Have you seen it? Yes. I yes, recommend it to yeah, people yeah. all the time. Because I love that movie because it talks about genetic engineering. And I always wonder, like, what, will, what would we want to engineer? I'm fascinated by that question. Because there's some things that I'm not sure we, in theory, we would want to engineer. Oh, let's make everyone more compassionate, right? Is that really a good idea? What happens about the guy who's not compassionate, who is not genetically engineered? Think about the how much advantage he's going to take out of everyone who's like super nice to him. <laughs> right. That guy's going to be king of the world, right? Because right. Every, imagine a world like everyone's super compassionate and given, except this one guy, right? What, what an advantage that is. But I think that one thing we can all agree on is getting rid of these like, nasty ass genes that some people have man of like this like the pedophile if it is genetic right and like could we get rid of that i think that's the one thing that everyone across all cultures throughout history they're gonna agree on yeah right yeah, like they're like, okay let's get rid of that guy like so if we can alter genetics in the future i think that will be the first one on the list well i think like you're saying that the the, the obvious is functions for sure like you wouldn't I don't think anybody would want their children to be born with Down syndrome or with anything. True. Like, or, True. you know, Those like two. being yeah. blind or, you know, or being paraplegic or whatever. So there's an obvious, like, I think defects that I think for the most part everybody would agree I thought on. you were going to say hairy. You don't want your child being Hey, look who's going to say it. I'm proud of my hair, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, those are cosmetic things yeah. those will be interesting yeah. when people oh, choose you know what I mean because some people are going to say oh be hairless blue eyes yeah. blonde and like, uh oh we're going to Hitler territory yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? no, but, yeah. but here's the thing like, imagine if you can actually make your child stronger would you yeah and then of course you want to but then that's fucked up with the other people who are poor and they can't do that to their kids well, then right. it becomes kind of like a, a genetic arms race, right? Like, yeah, it's exactly can... what it is, and it's scary, and we, man. But we kind of already have that in a sense where, uh, at least I think, like, like, communist nations, we're doing that with our athletes. Yes. 100%. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think we were probably doing it here for sure. What's that guy's name, uh, Karelin? Yeah. He looked like he had <laughs> some, <a> <laughs> something was injected. I don't know what it was or how much of it, but that guy does not look normal, man. Uh, he's he looks like if a bear took, in, it took a human form. It will be Corellin. This is a monstrous man. Yeah. yeah. And he, like, he invented that reverse body lift. Yeah. And mind you, he's a heavyweight. So For him to lift To lift 300 weights. plus pound guys of from athletics, the floor. You know, not just, just fat slobs. Yeah. We're talking about Olympic caliber wrestlers. Yeah, it's like doing a deadlift to a snatch almost because he picks up. But here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. There's some things that are, like, for example, a deadlift is designed to be lifted. The way they put the weights, yeah. the way it's... Uh, and now we're talking about an Olympic caliber wrestler who does not want to be lifted. Yeah. Right? It's different. They're very different things. I mean, you ever try to, I mean, pick up my daughters, put them to bed sometimes when they're asleep. You know how hard that is? <laughs> and they're tiny. And they're like falling. Like you got, it's so hard to hold someone that doesn't care about being yeah, held. Well, I guess right? I could just try to grab a cat with this one if you grab. No, it's, it's, it doesn't matter how heavy it is. Man. It's very hard to yeah. carry something like that. You know, yeah. like imagine picking up like the wrestlers that this guy was picking up. This guy was a genetic freak. And I don't think it was just his parents, although his parents certainly played a role because just steroids don't do that by themselves. Yeah. You know, he, the genetic component there is huge. But yeah, he definitely had something. He's I think like Russia just got kicked out of a, did. a bunch of Olympic sports. Like, I'm not, world, I'm not... world divisions as well, correct. Uh, it wasn't the, the, not all the athletes were taken out, but the, they're allowing some of the athletes, I guess, who didn't pop to compete, but under a neutral banner, which yeah. I don't know what that means. So I guess they're still able to compete, but they're not representing a nation. I've never even heard of yeah, that. Yeah, because you don't, I mean, not all athletes should be punished. I get where they're coming yeah. from. 
But the, the, que- the question is, is there something that is institutional? As well, that's what they're it? saying. Yeah. It was like essentially the Russian machine was yeah. helping these guys spike yeah. tests. I think, I'm not sure that was related to, I mean, they were caught with the Sochi thing. Yeah. And the, so they, <laughs> I don't know. Here's the thing. Like, I, I, I look, I think yeah. the punishment 100%. But I remember watching a documentary called Icarus. Yes, yes. You've yes, seen it? Yes, it's about yeah. a cyclist and he does all this stuff, right? And a lot of it, I mean... I'm sure the Russian would watch that and go, "That's Russian, anti-Russian propaganda." Which there might be some truth to that. Too. It's our biggest, you know, next to China, one of our biggest rivals. But what's interesting to me is that they, this guy who was like, "I'm going to inject myself with everything," is like the the host of the documentary, and he ends up like taking like fifth or sixth in the race. So what does that tell you, man? Yeah. Like if this guy who was a psych, he was not a chump. He was not like he was a a, like a, a weekend warrior. He was doing yeah, it. He but was cycling. He did yeah. everything those guys were doing. He prepared himself and he took everything. He still took like fifth. What that suggests to me is that all right, like, are you really being successful in that particular sport? Because I know cycling is probably the most known for doping, right? Yeah. I don't think that there's any other sport where I maybe mean, powerlifting. Maybe I don't know. I think do they test for powerlifting. I don't know. Uh, I know the Olympics they do, but like, I, I, I wouldn't think I they would know. for strongman stuff. I yeah, think it's just, my, my it's, guess is no. It's just yeah, anything but, goes. So okay, so cycling yeah. they do, but like cycling, out of the, yeah. all the ones that they get tested, I think cycling is probably the one that people dope the most, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lance Armstrong is a freak of nature. Would he have been the best in the world without it? Probably not. Would he have make it top ten? I don't know. Probably maybe. I don't know. I think he would have been like, I, I don't know where he would sit because I don't know in that particular industry how much. I, I, my guess is like every the top 10 are definitely on something. That would be my guess, well, but like, I, I can't say for sure. According to where he was everyone is. Yeah. Right? He was just the best one at it, right? Because I guess there's a certain limit to the human performance, right? Yeah. And with cycling, is kind of, at least from, my, from what I can tell, it's pretty simple. We're pedaling. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure there's strategies like, okay, you don't want to be in front the whole time. That's why they have teams. It's, they're, they're changing. It's simple strategy. Yeah. Yeah. But you're talking about margins like this thin, right? Yeah. So when we're talking about 0.5% improvement, we'll win the race. It's huge. And, and we're, yeah. <laughs> it's like that old Seinfeld joke with horse racing. First place, second place, dead last. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> the margins are like yeah. that. If the doping gives you a 2% increase, That's huge. you're blowing everybody out of the water now. It's true, because it's so close. Yeah, so everything's it's so tight. Especially something like cycling, where it is, you're right, like the strategical, technical aspect. I mean, it's funny, because like, people that do it some other sports, what do you mean it's not technical? And, like, when you come from fighting, it's like, yeah, it's like not. running, <laughs> super technical. No, it's I, there's some technique to it, but like, For you sure. cannot tell me that running and cycling are super technical. I'm it, sorry. It doesn't have the, the complexity of... Martial Others, arts, martial arts for sure. Particular yeah. because I think martial arts is the most complicated. I hundred percent because there's so many ways you can move. And there's so many strategies. So many different ways you can win. Yeah, you can so only many, win the race in one way. Yeah, finish exactly. first. That's the only way you can win. There's no other way you can win a race. But like right? you say, there, of course, there's a lot of technique in all these things. Like even with running, the the proper like me and you would probably run like cavemen compared to when an elite runner runs. Like they understand the cadence, the gait. How to pull using the the ball, the feet, yeah. and they run. So there's a ton of technique behind it, but it's pretty much only one way to do it. Like you said, yeah. to win a race, you gotta put your feet forward and run. Yeah. That's about it, right? Whereas fighting, you might want to pull guard, you might yeah. want to move forward, you might want to kick, you might want to punch. So like, there's so much variation, and that's why like it's it's we don't have a a prototype of what's the best 
fighter yet. You yeah. still don't know because everybody's still experimenting. You know, like, the, the lab's still going. And the lab's still UFC, going. And, and, and the UFC's been going on for how long now? And it's still an active lab. I think that we're getting close yeah, to even finding like, that perfect recipe for what how a fighter should be trained and what he should look like and what height and all of that. Because in other sports, in gymnastics, yeah, you want to be short. Yeah. And in basketball, you want to be tall, obvious, right? Fighting, well, where, what do you want to be? You see what I'm saying? Because yeah. we've seen it all. But I think eventually we're going we're gonna to bring it down close to a, a medium. Yeah. We're going to get There's going to be a short range or yes. at least a prescribed set. Like, okay, you're going to be this wrestler type prototype, ground and pound yeah. this. If you're going to be the striker type prototype, the sprawling ball, you're going to be like a John Jones you, type. You know, yeah. One thing that's been consistent throughout MMA's history, though, or its recent history, is that most guys have a background. Very few people have been successful started out with just MMA. Ever notice that? Like they start like, I'm going to do jiu-jitsu, wrestling, striking, all develop all three of them together. You know, I think the vast majority of guys, they either come, majority come from wrestling, hands down, and then, you know, the rest of them like, you know, submission wrestling, jiu-jitsu, striking, whatever, all mixed up. But, uh, like, it's, it's, it seems to me that that's the case. I think uh, for sure there's a, there's a good, especially for the guys coming from a wrestling background or whatnot, because it's like already an athlete pedigree yeah. and they're moving in. I know, at least in my gym, since we are MMA from day one, we have built a few guys. Okay. MMA all the way through. I think it's more just a sign of the times, really, like, because, you know, MMA really hasn't started around like 2002, three, I think. It started becoming mainstream, yeah. Yeah. And even then, it wasn't really mainstream yet. It wasn't mainstream until like True. Ultimate Fighter. Correct. You know, even because I remember like my school in Miami was the first MMA school. They had lots of jiu-jitsu schools doing MMA, you know, like the Silvera brothers who became American Top Team, all that. They were a jiu-jitsu school, and then they would have guys do MMA. But our school was the first. We called it freestyle fighting back then because there wasn't MMA yet. The term MMA did not exist. It did not exist yet, but we called it yeah. freestyle fighting, but we were doing everything from day one. Like we would punch, kick, grapple, yeah. all that. So it's going to be interesting to me in the future because I believe the best uh, fighting formula has to be done through training mixed martial arts because yeah. as we, we talked about before as you called it the, the in-betweens you can't learn the in-betweens in single disciplines correct right it has to be done in totality and then you're able to expose that so i think as the fight game grows and more mma schools come together we will see athletes that start from day one all the way up but there is a question of as you say because the bigger sports have more funding so there are going to be higher levels of research better training formula. So I think that's why guys who are coming from a wrestling background have a good advantage because they've trained through a battle-tested formula. So they're already athletes. They're already really well in shape. And now we're going to... And they already have a very fundamental skill yeah. required. So now we're just going to inject this other stuff. Yeah. But they have to learn all those go-betweens. Like they're going to get guillotined a bunch of times and they're going to get really good choke because they go to floors every so often. But like they learn through the mistakes. Yeah, I, I do want to see... Like it's, it's, it's interesting because like we've been following the evolution of MMA since the beginning and it's interesting to see how much... It's changed. How much it's drifted from jujitsu, at least, because to me, jujitsu and volleyball. When I started training, with the same thing. Yeah. There's like there's like a thin line between them. Now it's like completely different, man. Like think about high level lapel guard, you know, entry, you know, like and then you contrast that with what's happening in the UFC. It's like whoa, man. Like these things were related at some point. And back then it was very close, man. Like you know, it wasn't so different, I guess. Even like when we would train, we train with open hands a lot of times. When mm -hmm. I first started training. We take our geese off and we just like, we just strike each other, open hand, like not in the head, you know, that's kind of like fucked up.
but we'd hit each other in the body, we're constantly slapping each other, letting you know, like, hey, man, I'm hitting you. You know, it's kind of, when, when I was a white boy, we, we trained like that at least once a week. Mm. You know, but just give you an idea of how close, you know, the association was between jiu-jitsu and MMA. Yeah, I know. I started, uh, I totally went from Jeet Kune Do, and I remember me and my brother bought this protective gear so we can hit and stuff. It was only when I got into wrestling, though, that we started actually doing, like, I, I think I told you before, we were doing backyard fights. Yeah. <laughs> I was like 14. It was me, my brother. We had the state champion at the time, uh, at 189, Moses McCraney. Yeah. And he was a grown man, pretty much. He was a big dude, you know. And then we had a couple of my buddies. <laughs> and we would just go at it with, and I don't know why my parents allowed this to happen. Like, my parents are kind of hippie-ish, I guess. Yeah. They just let things go. Oh, the kids are fighting back yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. backyard. No big deal. <laughs> and like Moses was like, I think he was yeah. 18. He, was, he yeah. looked like a full-grown man, you know. And man, we were just fighting back there. And uh, my brother was the only guy who really utilized jiu-jitsu. Because I, told, I learned some submissions yeah. in Jeet Kune Do, but I didn't really learn it. Like, I, I think I told you the pace that we had gone through they would show like 100 techniques like in a, in a class yeah and then the next class totally different set of techniques so i never really learned anything i just everything mixed but my brother he had an arm bar he had a triangle and i think he had a rear naked and you know like in one of the backyard fights he he arm barred somebody and then i remember i was just wrestling my way to wins like i would just shoot take people down and try to ground and pound them but it's funny looking back at it i think there was a video that my brother had i had to dig it up because it'd be hilarious to see that would be funny to see. It would man. be hilarious if to see. You, please post that on YouTube, man. People are gonna <laughs> die. Anyway, Dave, I gotta get going, man. I got, I gotta go. Yes, sir. But, um, we had fun. Thanks for this, Dave. Thank you for. Hope you guys enjoyed. Absolutely. Um, and uh, we will do this again next week. One week, we've been pretty consistent. Yeah, you know? yeah. Every week, we've been pumping them out. So again, uh, thanks for joining us. This is uh, episode twenty. And guys, if you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends Absolutely. and uh, spread the word out there. Hopefully, you know, once again, suggestions, send them to me, Dave, or the Breaking the Guard account. Uh, let us know anything you would like to hear us talk about. More of this, less of that. You know, we had some uh, some uh, suggestions for the mic. You know, I think we fixed the problem. We had some sound suggestions. That was sure, the sure. Really. The only thing they really came was like that. Other than that, people seem to be enjoying it. Oh, and get a lower desk. So we did that. Yeah. We lowered the desk. In case you haven't noticed, we didn't get taller. The desk is like six <laughs> inches shorter. So, yeah. Yeah. We got you. All right. Awesome, guys. See you guys next time. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as me and Robert. As always, if you guys enjoyed it, let us know. You can hit us up on social media. I'm at David Avalon. Robert's at Robert Drive to JJ. Uh, or you're so breaking the guard at breaking the guard whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or whatnot. Uh, we always like to hear what you guys have to say about the show. As Robert mentioned at the end of this show, we adjusted the table based on people's recommendations, so it, it looks a lot better now. We don't look like, <laughs> we don't look like we're standing behind the Great Wall of China. <laughs> okay, so we're always looking to improve. So if you guys have feedback or suggestions, go ahead and send them our way. Thank you, guys, and have a wonderful day. A final word from our sponsors, which is DrysdaleBJJOnline.com. DrysdaleBJJOnline.com is Robert's membership site. And it's structured differently than most membership sites, which are monthly fees, and you get access to all their content, which is great. Uh, Robert is doing it in a slightly different way, which I think a lot of people will like, where He's giving you bite-sized courses for a really low rate. I think there's a course as low as $9.
that you can learn uh, various series from him, from chokes, guard passing, sweeps, set up in a very easy way where you can log in and get the content that you want to learn. Again, you can visit that at DrysdaleBJJOnline.com. Again, a lot of these I've seen personally from Robert, from training with him. And the thing that I love about Robert is that he is very articulate. He understands the technique really well and is able to break it down to the fundamental parts. So I know he was teaching uh, over underpass and he had brought things to light to me that even myself, who I consider myself a really good guard passer, I was learning things from the way he broke it down. And I believe that's one of the series he has on there as well. So you'll do yourself a favor. Go ahead and order a course there from DrysdaleBJJOnline.com and you can preview the content there as well.